early hours of the morning, depending on where you are in the world. Thank you for joining us. Today we're going to be talking about, the title is uh, to join the top 10% of healthy people, cardiometabolic health. And <clears throat> the way that title's written, you're going to want to know what the cut points are. The article was not that clear on it. Maybe a better idea or title behind the story is further decline in Americans' uh, cardiometabolic health. We'll talk about that when we get there. <clears throat> uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the channel and those of you that are familiar with it, here, here's some of the previous topics, recent topics, lifestyle changes for New Year's resolutions, what that really means. Um, and what makes sense. Value-based care and commercial risk. Uh, there's a big change going on in medicine right now. And for the most part, it's a good change. It's going from uh, fee-for-service to fee-for-value. In other words, doctors no longer uh, will no longer get paid for just walking in, patting you on the back, asking you how Uncle Fred is, writing a script, and running out in 15 minutes or 10 minutes or seven minutes. They're going to have to accomplish something in terms of your health. That's very, very different from what doctors have been doing for the past 50 to 100 years. So we've been very successful in doing that. Um, uh, I originally trained in prevention, preventive medicine. I used to run the program in preventive medicine at Johns Hopkins and have used that in value-based uh, care programs my whole career. Up until very recently, they were just rare. Not anymore. That's changing quickly. So we're developing programs to help train other doctors. If you'd like for your doctor to learn this, then uh, check out our new channel, our new YouTube channel, and our new website. We'll give you some uh, links to that a little bit later in the show. Uh, then there was an interesting uh, article, further comparison of caloric restriction versus intermittent fasting. And <clears throat> as you go back and you dig into the data, they get a, the boundaries between those two get a little bit foggy. Now, we're all about helping people. There's not enough of us to go around. Even if I hired 17 more doctors or like I've done in previous organizations had 700 doctors, that's still not enough to take care of even just the, the folks that need it in the United States. So unfortunately, the, the reality is we all as patients need to learn some basics. Why? Because there's a root cause for most cardiovascular disease, heart attack, stroke, kidney disease, blindness, and unfortunately, multiple studies from Mayo Clinic, uh, Hopkins, um, now Harvard's gotten into that, basically showing that about two thirds of primary care doctors don't know how to diagnose it, let alone manage it. So the um, within a few hours, you yourself can learn what this is. It's called uh, insulin resistance. That's what the doctors call it. Uh, Pre-diabetes, metabolic syndrome, 
There's a bunch of names for it, but that is the key thing. We've got a, within a couple hours and uh, just a few dollars, you can learn this. And if you can't afford uh, the suggested uh, contribution, we can give it to you for free. Just let us know that. There are some other things that docs don't understand either. Cardiovascular inflammation and how, and plaque evaluation. You know, the typical classic thing is, hey, doc, I'm a little bit worried about whether I'm going to have a heart attack. Could we get a stress test? Well, you could get a stress test, but a stress test is not going to tell you whether you're going to have a heart attack or not. There are plenty of people that are good examples of that, like Tim Russert, the poster boy for that. So we, uh, we go into that in our plaque evaluation course. And we also have a book I'll describe in just a minute. If you're not a, um, if you are a YouTuber, uh, think about joining our YouTube channel. It would be great. It helps us get information out. We've got uh, viewers all over the world. Uh, China, for example, including Asia. Uh, one of the reasons we moved our our, broad, our YouTube live broadcast time was to help was that requests from folks in Asia to be able to uh, to attend live. Um, so uh, help us right now. Basically, I uh, support the vast majority of what goes on in terms of production. Um, Gilbert does the uh, the co-hosting for the show. He's also a great um, graphics person. Uh, we've got Aspen and um, Rafi doing uh, video editing. Jesus and um, James are uh, managing the CCM program and Michelle manages everything else, including me. Um, that takes, uh, that takes, uh, a few dollars to do that. So uh, simple, simply joining the YouTube channel or uh, joining the locals or rumble uh, programs off will give us an opportunity, give you an opportunity to make a small contribution. And again, that would be appreciated. I'm not going to talk about the subscription plans. They are uh, still the most popular way of working with us. Uh, we'll talk more about uh, how to work with us in the future. Uh, we've got a lot of changes going on. I've mentioned the Medicare program uh, changes, and um, we will do what we can to keep you posted on that. But it is progressing. I mentioned um, Tim Russert being the poster boy for, um, for not depending on a stress test. He got a stress test during the... Um, he, he was worried about his heart attack uh, potential. Got a stress test during the Cherry Blossom Festival. He was in, um, he lived in uh, Washington, D.C. And it passed it in flying colors because he's a runner or was a runner. A few weeks later, he uh, was taping for his show. I think it's Meet the Press. Um and had a heart attack and died after passing the stress test. So it's a myth to think that a stress test is going to predict, predict a heart attack. There are better ways of assessing your risk. So I mentioned the Medicare program. Uh, we've had some significant developments. Um, I'm not going to go into those today. I'll get, get into them as we get a little bit deeper. One thing I will say, though, is 
um, we have to to do some significant changes in terms of uh, coding and billing processes for Medicare. And we are working on those as we speak. So we will, again, keep you posted. Uh, as I said, we've been successful in this a couple of times. Um, I was the chief science officer for a company called uh, Physician Partners based out of Tampa. For several years, uh, we had a five-star program. That means the highest quality program. And at this point, they're like 150,000 uh, members. And you don't get into a five-star program without really doing a good job of delivering great access uh, care, care that patients enjoy, and keeping folks healthy. Uh, as you may remember, I uh, personally, along with James West, started up a program in Alabama. Uh, we grew that quickly and got to a point to where we needed more infrastructure. So we, uh, we went back to our friends at Physician Partners, and they were very excited to, uh, to bring that on. So I'm still a, a major, uh, I have major interest in that program, but uh, it's become much more of a uh, it's become a much larger program at this point. Now we're working again on focusing on the telemedicine components to provide telemedicine uh, through Medicare. Uh, so big, big increase in access because, again, you just pay Medicare co-pays uh, to get some of the best uh, prevention in the world. We'll keep you posted on progress for that. It's very um I will say this, we sent out one email and we got about 600 people saying, yes, I'd be very interested in doing that. So as you can see, we're, uh, that would be a major influx of new patients immediately. So we're going slow in terms of making sure that we've got all of our systems ready. We've piloted the CCM program. If you're not familiar with CCM, basically it's a way to keep the patient in touch with the doctor's office team, the care team. So basically what, what we do is we send you some uh, emails. It's usually on a three times a week basis. And it asks you things about, uh, are you watching your diet? Are you watching carbs? If so, how many carbs per meal are you uh, eating? Um, and then are you watching your blood sugar reactions to those? What is your most recent weight? What is your most recent blood pressure? Um, are there questions that you want us to call you about? So one of the things that's happened is this is not a program that we developed uh, on our own. This is a program that Medicare started years, a few years ago. And uh, what they have found is that people that participate in this program save Medicare a whole bunch of money. So Medicare is very excited about that and continuing to grow it. But that's not really what the interest is for the patient. Think about what saves Medicare money. People not having to go in the hospital because they're not sick. So again, participation in this program is a marker and maybe a significant mechanism for better health. I actually think it's both. So we've got that program up and running. Jesus is running it again with um, James's help, and we're ready to expand that um, when we're ready to when we uh, start taking um, 
significant numbers of Medicare patients. We, uh, we also need to get some of the coding systems required by Medicare set up first. Now, uh, you'd have to be, well, a lot of people are asleep. I started to say you'd have to be asleep if you haven't heard of a Zempic. I talk to people every day that still have not heard of Azempic or the glip ones. They are the best thing that's happened in terms of medication treatment for diabetes, uh, maybe ever. Um, so there's a lot of people going on it. Uh, each, every few months, a new blockbuster study will come out showing how, how lives are being saved with the glip ones. Now, here's the problem. Well, let me just tell you, the glip ones originally came, historically, they originally were discovered as part of Gila monster saliva. So for those of you who are interested in uh, trivia, that's an interesting trivia fact. Uh, the, um, well, I won't go any further on that, but I will say that the other thing uh, about them is that they are actually a hormone it's a hormone made by a place that you wouldn't think about making hormones, the intestines. And these harm, this hormone tells the intestine, tells the, um, the pancreas, you should probably increase the insulin uh, readiness a little bit because we're getting ready, we're active. And it tells the stomach to, uh, you know, we are active, so don't, so, close down, uh, don't empty more into the intestine. Anyhow, it also does some interesting things too. There's, uh, I have personally been taking it for about six months and it has a significant positive impact on my sleep. There are several patients that I've talked to that uh, have experienced this as well. Noticing that impact uh, and some other impacts, there's also been some research looking into this for uh, even things like uh, uh, drug addictions. Very, very interesting um, information and uh, reactions to these drugs. Now, um, do they have anything to do with the brain? Not that we know of. Are there significant dangers? Yes, the most significant danger is uh, a type of cancer associated with uh, the endocrine glands, thyroid, uh, um, pancreas. So if you've had uh, endocrine cancers in the family, these are not drugs to even consider. Uh, however, you, if you haven't and you do have diabetes, uh, the risks are just completely one-sided for diabetes being far more likely to do to disable or kill you. Now, here's the problem though. Ozempic is also the most uh, effective and safest diet drug, weight loss drug that we have seen. And so there's a huge shortage. <laughs> Wealthy people Movie stars, politicians have found out about this and it, it, they're snapping it up. So you just can't get Ozempic. Now, uh, we're providing prescriptions to our current patients who need it and asking the pharmacist to give an indication of when it's going to be filled. We don't use prescriptions for Bidurion and Bi Bieta, Exenatide. 
data it's linked with uh, endocrine cancers uh, significant increase uh, link there so you've got much safer much better options and again the exenatides were the some of the originals that were a little bit closer linked to uh to gila monster saliva specifically for those with struggling with the azimpic shortage there are other options i i got some of these uh, options from a local pharmacist in kentucky trulicity 0.75 milligrams weekly wagovi 1.7 milligrams to 2.4 weekly mongero 2.5 to 7.5 and genuvia or ribelsis so again those of you struggling with uh accessing ozempic that's what this was about now Metabolic health in the U.S. We're going to be covering that in our um, in our uh, larger content today. But we've also got a preliminary study as well. This was on metabolic syndrome and related disorders, uh, 2019. It was from NHANES. If you haven't heard of NHANES, it's the National Health and Nutri Nutrition Examination Survey. It's something that's done. Uh, full component every 10 years, but a lot of uh, subcomponents, even on a yearly basis. Now, here's what they did. They used cut points to define metabolically healthy, such as a glucose less than 100 milligrams, blood pressure less than 120 over 80, triglycerides less than 150, and waist circumference less than 102 centimeters for men and 88 centimeters for women. On no medications uh, and some other cut points as well. Only 12.12% by those criteria were considered metabolically healthy. And here's the question. You have to ask the, the age. And unless I'm mistaken on this study, it was any age. So very interesting information. Today, the uh, larger content is on a similar article. It was in JAC, the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. It was in July of last year. And it was also about the, our population in the U.S. and the average cardiometabolic health. Uh, they weren't quite so clear at cut points, but one thing they showed is that we're getting sicker. Who's surprised about that? This article was featured in multiple platforms such as Healthline, Science Daily, Time Magazine, Newsweek. The authors aimed to investigate U.S. trends in optimal cardiometabolic health from 1999 to 2018. They adapted the criteria for cardiovascular health established by the American Heart Association. <clears throat> they assessed proportions of adults with optimal cardiometabolic health based on adiposity. What's adiposity? Uh, obesity, how, how much fat they someone has. Adipose tissue is um, body fat. Excuse me just a minute. So um, they also looked at other things like blood glucose levels, blood lipids, blood pressure, clinical cardiovascular disease, such as a positive calcium score or um, known diagnosis in, in cardiovascular diseases. Uh, the study included 55,000 people, and it was also done using that NHANES, National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. 
2017, 2018, only 6.8% of the U.S. adults had optimal cardiometabolic health. That was lower than what was reported in 1999 and 2000. The largest decline for adip was for uh, adiposity and glucose levels. So in other words, we're getting heavier, we're adding body fat, and because we're adding body fat, we're getting more insulin resistant and our glucose levels are going up. There was a slight improvement in blood lipid levels, in other words, cholesterol. So as you can tell, everybody's focused on uh, cholesterol levels. There was a slight improvement in them. As a population, we focused on it. Our healthcare manpower is focused on it, but we still have not focused on diabetes, prediabetes, and it's still continuing to get worse. There were evident disparities, uh, disparities by age, by sex, by education, by race, uh, generally worsening over time. By 2017 and 2018, the prevalence or the proportion of people with optimal cardiometabolic health was lower among Americans with lower education, Mexican-American uh, heritage, and non-Hispanic white adults. From 99 to 2018, cardiometabolic health has been poor and worsening. That was the conclusion. And who's surprised? Only 6.8% of, of adults have <clears throat> optimal cardiometabolic health. There's a real problem that requires public health interventions to fix it. So um, that was our large content or our uh, longer content for the day. Folks are getting geared up. Don Stewart, I had an ischemic stroke last year. I'm taking 2.5 milligrams of Crestor three days a week. Do you think that's enough? I also take baby aspirin every day. No carbs or sugar. BMI is 21. Well, Don, I can't tell whether that's enough or not. I, uh, just as a reminder for you and others, um, I can't answer individual uh, questions. I can't, <clears throat> when you do that, when, when I try to answer an individual question for somebody like you, number one, I'm practicing medicine over the internet and I can't do that. Um, and one of the, for those of you who are curious about this, one of the key uh, things that you have to watch out for is I cannot look at somebody and say, oh yes, you're gonna be fine or no, you've got a problem. What I can say though is generic statements. Now, for example, this is 2.5 milligrams of Crestor uh, effective for uh, just generically for people. Yes, uh, 2.5 milligrams. I've got a lot of people on 2.5 milligrams of Crestor uh, a lot of people uh, post-event, uh, post-heart attack, post-stroke. Um, it's, as I've discussed many times, I'm more concerned about cardiovascular inflammation than I am uh, dropping LDL. Most docs just look at LDL level and try to drop that. Well, cardiometabolic health is so much more important than just LDL level. You need to know HDL level. You need to know triglycerides. You need to know... Um, uh, uh, stomach circumference, you need to know blood pressure, all those things that we just talked about in the 
uh, short and long content today. You know, if you look at researchers, they're not just looking at, some of them are just looking at LDL, but when you look at cardiometabolic health, you're looking at bigger items or more items. The other thing is um, when you're looking at or for cardiovascular inflammation, you can get my uh, course on it within a couple hours. You'll know it far better than your doctor. And the major uh, idea behind low-dose statins has to do with cardiovascular health, uh, inflammation. Um, <clears throat> again, you can get that off of our website. Uh, we have a suggested donation. If you can't give the donation, just take it for free. Um, and Michelle can help you get, uh, get started with that or get started with an evaluation for us, either one. So JMK2921, if calcium is a good sign of stabilized plaque, why would we want to pull that calcium out of the coronary plaque with vitamin K2? You know, that's actually a bigger, it's a great question. And believe it or not, it's a bigger topic than you might think. It goes in a couple of different, uh, different directions. One direction I'll say is that one of the questions that that implies is, is it the calcium that stabilizes plaque? And uh, do you not want to pull that calcium out? There was actually a study. John Lorscheider found it when he was uh, working with the channel and presented on it. And uh, I think his vote at that time was, yeah, he felt like you need to keep the calcium there. Uh, what they, it was, it was an, uh, uh, in vitro study. In vivo means in the body while somebody's alive. In vitro means uh, not in the body. So what had happened in this, I think it was some folks in the army, one of the armed services did it in a lab. Um, they got plaques uh, from, I believe it's from, from lab animals. In order, so in order to get plaques from lab animals, these animals were sacrificed. Um, then they put these uh, plaques in, in uh, some chemical that dissolves, supposedly dissolved their plaque, and they felt like that greatly increased the friability or the, the potential for that plaque to uh, disintegrate. So um, a lot of people said, hmm. We don't want, took that information and said, mm, we don't want to take calcium out of um, plaque. Assuming that what happened in vivo, in vitro actually works in vivo. I'm not making that assumption. I'm not really too worried about calcium in plaque one way or another. I like when somebody has soft plaque, I like to see it calcify. There's no question about that. That is a sign of stabilization. But I don't think it's just calcium itself. In fact, I think the bigger component is, um, is fibrous tissue. I think you can start getting some fibrous tissue, you know, fibers. Uh, you get some decrease in inflammatory cells. You get decrease in liquid. I mean, if you look at my, my most popular video, it was how I decreased my cardiovascular plaque, uh, my arterial age from 72 to like 57. And here was the thing. It really wasn't pulling the, the cholesterol components of the plaque out. 
When you see those, I'm more convinced that it's uh, taking the liquid components and the inflammatory cells out of that plaque. So, as I said, seems like a simple, easy question, but it's a great opportunity for me to go down a couple of long bunny holes. Bottom line is, I'm not worried about uh, getting plaque uh, calcium in or out of plaque. Uh, I'm worried about getting the plaque stabilized. Calcium is an indicator that plaque has stabilized. So I'm not interested in pulling that calcium out. Um, why do people do that? Well, they have the assumption. They hear that, oh, I, the higher your um, calcium score, the higher your calcium is measured in a calcium score, the greater your risk for heart attack and stroke. That's true. So that takes me down yet another bunny hole. But again, it all, all of these bunny holes have to do with your specific question, JMK. If, um, so the, the question and the point is, look, if a higher calcium score causes, is associated with greater risk, then why don't I want to get my calcium out of my arteries? That's where the assumption and the question goes. And again, that's based on that same assumption, um, except the opposite side of it. Uh, oh, gosh, I got a big increase in my calcium. And I have to deal with that a lot because people come to me, they get their uh, lifestyle straight. They greatly decrease, you know, they lose 30 pounds. They're plaque, uh, they get tons of soft plaque that calcifies. And then they say, oh my gosh, I thought I was gonna get a, a reversal of my calcium score. And in fact, it got much, much worse. So that's where that thing comes from. Now that's uh, the question about why would people want to decrease calcium? That's why. So here's the next question. What does vitamin K2 have to do with all of this? Well, there's the assumption that vitamin K2 decreases. It takes uh, calcium out of arteries and puts it back in bone. Where did that come from? Actually, there's some interesting information about an association there. There's, and it has to do with things called osteoclasts and osteoblasts. Osteoclasts uh, chew up bone tissue and uh, take calcium out of bone. Osteoblasts put um, calcium back into bone. So there's actually a mechanism whereby vitamin K2 has to do with, um, with turning on and off osteoblasts and osteoclasts. That appears to be where the original connection came from. So as I said, long, long uh, response to what would have been a very simple question. I hope you got all that. If you didn't, if, you, if it left you with uh, more questions or a specific question, let me know. Bart Robinson saying, look, I heard you hear about, I heard you, you say you prefer non-enteric coated uh, baby aspirin. I can't find it. You know, Bart, I appreciate that question. I, I think I may be a little bit dated on that question because I think that enteric coatings may have improved. I went back and looked and I'm not finding it either. What I am finding is either chewable baby aspirin or enteric coating. And I haven't found any 
recently that's not. So I need to go back and, you know, I'm embarrassed to say I went back and looked at my, uh, the baby aspirin that I have right now, right now. Um, it's a little bit dated too. I'm, I am now on uh, river Roxaban or Zarelto. And why would I be on that? Uh, I have atrial fib. I've had it. Uh, once you've had it, you should not go off of Eliquis or Zarelto. You should be on a NOAC. If anybody has questions about those, uh, let me know. Melissa, my CIMT plaque is heterogeneous and echogenic. What, what does that mean? My numbers are not good. CCA uh, mean is 1.17, CCA, common carotid artery, uh, 1.17, CCA 1.32, plaque burden. So let me tell you something, Melissa. Um, Again, I'd have to see your specific numbers, and Michelle can get you set up to do that if you want to do that with me. But I can say a few things. That the numbers that you're quoting look like they came from cardio risk. Cardio risk has about the best quality uh, control for CIMT activities. So that's a major advantage. On the other hand, they have these numbers and these numbers are like the first and second components of the cardio risk report. If I've had one person come to me getting ready to jump off a cliff thinking I'm about to die, I've had hundreds. And I have to walk them through that and I have to say, look, I've asked Todd if he could sort of de-emphasize those numbers. And he doesn't. I, um, I understand why he doesn't. The problem with uh, CIMT is, number one, it's not on the standards committees. We understand completely why. It, there's a... a um, uh, arterial age uh, varia variation there that's a, more garbage in, garbage out. When you have good groups doing it, um, you get a much better component there or, or a much better, more reliable read. But at the end of the day, arterial age is nothing but getting people's attention. The numbers that you've got there are also nothing but getting people's attention. What you really want and what is significant is, number one, do you have plaque? In other words, uh, components of plaque that are 1.3 millimeters or greater. Once you know you have plaque, 1.3 millimeters or greater, then, yep, you need to consider being on uh, a low-dose statin and a baby aspirin. Then there's the second thing. If you have plaque, is it soft or uh echogenic, or is it something in between? And something in between is heterogeneous. All of this is based on the, the amount of calcification that you see in the plaque. So that gets back up to JMK's question about calcification and whether it's good or bad, and all the confusion associated with that. Now, um, Heterogeneous. Many of us, Melissa, never get beyond heterogeneous into echogenic. Heterogeneous is stable. Uh, soft plaque is not stable. Heterogeneous is stable and echogenic is stable. So I get the question a lot too. Well, if soft is, is unstable and um, 
ecogenic is stable, what is heterogeneous? Is it sort of halfway in between? It's in between, but it's not halfway at all. It is like 90% there in terms of stability. And again, some of us never get beyond that piece. But don't worry about it if you're one of those, because uh, that uh, heterogeneous is stable. Melissa, mean CCA is 1.32. Got it. JMK, regarding your secondary prevention patients, do you ever check the blood test called MMP9? Matrix uh, metalloproteinase 9 to help predict coronary plaque rupture. I investigated that a couple of years ago. It didn't appear to be uh, worth it at that time. And I haven't seen a lot of uh, progression of it. it. It appeared to be one of those things like you know, they've done several things looking for the, quote, the vulnerable plaque. Well, that's sort of a, there are a couple of problems with looking for the, quote, the vulnerable plaque. One of them is that if one plaque is vulnerable, you've got bunches and bunches of them. It's a metabolic issue. It, uh, vulnerability, plaque vulnerability is a metabolic issue, not a localized issue. Um, and, you know, we talked about it. Some of the best indicators for metabolic issues are getting the metabolic labs, looking at your uh, glucose tolerance test, your insulin survey, looking at your, um, your current metabolic health. Again, I go back to the same thing that you saw in those studies today. Uh, uh, abdominal circumference, abdominal obesity, uh, your triglycerides, uh, triglycerides over HDL is a very, very important uh, ratio set of numbers. And then, as we've also been talking about in this, uh, in this uh, show today, looking for soft plaque on a CIMT. So those are the ways to tell whether or not you have soft plaque. They're much, much more reliable than a metalloproteinase. Rick Foley, a good morning from Atlanta. Good morning to you, Rick. And Gilbert, I see you flashing the Doctors Prevention Network up on the right-hand screen. Do, do we have the, um, the new customized link yet? I think Aspen said we do. And if we do, can you put that in the comments or something? Oh, there you go, right there. So, um, that's the new link. It's customized, so it's easier to uh, to understand what it is. https dot slash slash care dot dot com slash doctors and patients. Amer Algaer, good morning or good afternoon. Good morning, good afternoon to you, Amer. Uh, Almer, by the way, is in the Middle East, I believe. Rick Folia. At Melissa, are you still are you on a low carb diet? If not, consider trying it. I think that's a good suggestion, Rick. Melissa, what's your thoughts about eggs causing inflammation? I don't think they do. Not cardiovascular inflammation. There's so much conflicting information out there; it drives me crazy. Well, it, eggs were there were several things uh, that eggs were associated with long, long ago. It was the uh, yellow part of the egg, the yolk associated with cholesterol, because it's got a lot of cholesterol in it. And then it took us decades to figure it out. But we finally, I think most of us 
some of us are still saying that egg yolks cause cholesterol problems and don't know that we make multiple times the cholesterol that we would ever eat. Uh, there was still um, uh, some things having to do with um, another biomarker, which I'm not going to get into today, but uh, th as long as you've got good kidney function, uh, eggs are not, uh, eggs have a lot of protein. And even if you've got moderate level stage, stage two and three, even those folks are still not going to have problems with eggs. Rick Folia, how does fee value work for specialists? Is it just for PCPs? That's a great question, Rick. It's actually starting in with specialists now. Um, it has, the big thing has been with primary care docs. And this has been going on about 30 years now. Uh, some of the original pilot projects were in South Florida. Uh, Sid Pagatapati and some of the other folks that started uh, uh, Physician Partners uh, were in the original um, uh, pilot projects. A lot of adjustments had to be made to try to get, you know, make it uh, something that patients really enjoyed as well as uh, getting healthy. Uh, obviously, with any type of uh, government paid insurance, there's the potential for abuse. Um, and they've done a lot of work to improve that. And then now it's gotten to where it's working very, very well. Now they are one of the big trends is to get it just out of the primary care space and into the specialist space. So look for seeing that. Great, great question, Rick. Didn't expect to see that one. Melissa, sync, signing up for your cardiovascular inflammation course today. Well, excellent, Melissa. I do appreciate that. John Tocho became a new YouTube member. Thank you so much for joining the channel, John. And John has clearly, uh, uh, John has been around and has attended quite a few of these and is uh, someone who makes comments. I'm supposed to be in Patreon, so I need to check on that status as all, also. Well, thank you so much, John. I appreciate that. So as you do that, you're, again, making it possible for us to get uh, life-saving information out to folks. So, somnambulist. Does anybody know what a somnambulist is? Isn't that a somebody that puts people to sleep like a hypnotist? Thanks for these live events. Really enjoy the information I get. Have you an opinion on NMN? I do. <laughs> I was, uh, one of my aunts uh, died recently, uh, and I went to North Carolina to the uh, to the funeral. She was a great lady. It was a wonderful celebration of a wonderful life. Um, there were, by the way, uh, nine sisters. My mother was one of the sisters, uh, and one of the three remaining uh, sisters alive um in her 90s and um this was one of the older sisters that died as well so it wasn't unexpected anyhow i had a uh, quite a few <laughs> i had a few cousins come up and and talk with, with me about, about the channel and what's going on one of them started giving me a hard time he said doc you know you're sort of like a politician you 
you you say one side about these supplements, then you say the other side, and you never really give a clear opinion. You ought to just say, take it or don't take it. You're like a politician. And then, you know, a little bit later on, I found that he was interested in having me help him out a little bit. So I had a good chuckle on it. He's a great guy. I love him to death and very excited about um, being able to help anybody. Um, But here's the point, and you get it a lot. Well, Doc, you are. You're wishy-washy on most supplements. And here's the thing. I am wishy-washy on most supplements. Vitamin D3, I'm not that wishy-washy on. I'm very clear on it. Most people do need to supplement with vitamin D3. For those that have needs, and this is usually with LP little a, uh, with some of the um, um, cholesterol or lipid values, niacin can be very, very important. And I don't have wishy-washy opinions on that. But I've got wishy-washy opinions on NMN. It stands for um, nicotinamide mononucleotide. It's a, a supplement very, as you see, nicotinamide. You also may remember niacin ribos- uh, nicotinamide riboside. All of those things sound like niacin, don't they? And guess what? Uh, they're associated with the sirtuins. You may or may not have heard of sirtuins. Have you heard of David Sinclair? He's a faculty member at Harvard, and uh, I think, um, well, a couple of other places. He's a, an Australian, uh, globally renowned um, uh, life uh, life extension type of doctor and researcher. He's associated with NMN and a lot of these uh, uh, niacin-related products. Niacin-related products are usually going to be associated with the currency for energy within the mitochondria. And if that sounds a little bit detailed and theoretical, uh, sorry. I don't know how to simplify that much more. It's just if you've heard of the mitochondrial theory of aging, then that's what this is about. You're, here's the thing. The mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cell. They're like a furnace. And guess what? You know, if you've got a furnace, consider a, a, a wood burning furnace down in the basement, you know, like you used to have in the old days, um, or even an oil-based or coal-based furnace. Those things would work for a few years and then it would burn through the wall of the furnace and you'd have a problem and you'd have to go in and repair it. Well, guess what? You get similarities, significant similarities in the cells within our body. And the cells that require the most energy would be, guess what? The heart cells, uh, because they're the ones that are just beating all the time. You, You get maybe hundreds and thousands of mitochondria for a cardiovascular cell, whereas you get one or two in some of the bone and cartilage uh, cells or 10 or 20. But again, that's what is very much associated with the wear and tear on the cells. And why do you worry about wear and tear on the cells? Well, here's the thing. When you start looking at neurology, the different specialties of medicine, 
and you start looking at the diseases associated with medicine, you get into what David Sinclair in one of his books, and I think very rightly so, starts to call whack-a-mole medicine. What does whack-a-mole medicine mean? Here's the thing. When we, and, and once you think about it, you don't have to be a scientist to understand this. It's not that uh, neurologic diseases start in infancy or, uh, you know, different diseases start at different time periods. We have people set up in specialties because of the tissue. The reality is no matter, almost no matter which specialty you're talking about, excluding age-related specialties like pediatrics, neurology, cardiology, pulmonology, all of these specialties, uh, specialties, endocrinology, all of them really start working with people age 45 and above. And why is that? Because that's when all of us start getting sick, no matter what it is, kidney disease, eye disease, heart disease, brain disease, lung disease, all these things start in um, Middle age, start at age 45 and start increasing after that. Does this sound like a bunny hole to you? Let me go back and tie that, tie the end up to, to this question. So the reality is that the vast, most diseases are associated with aging and aging is, appears to be associated with several things. One of the key things being, um, wear and tear on the mitochondria. Now we'll get back to your question. NMN, uh, the sirtuins, the other niacin uh, analogs are supposedly, supposedly associated with improving mitochondrial health. Do they work? Mm, you know, no, I, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> I've taken them quite a bit. I'm not taking them right now. Um, because I'm wishy-washy on them. Some supplements help. In fact, if you go back and you look with hard science, that's one of the things that I wanted to bring to this space from the very beginning, before I even started the YouTube channel. I wanted to bring real science to this space. And when you look at the real scientific evidence, most supplements do work a little bit in certain situations. So I don't, if this sounds wishy-washy, so be it. Uh, there are times and places to try supplements. Is NMN uh, the fountain of youth for everybody? No. Fort Worth West Side, are the alternative drugs you cited just as effective as Ozempic? I, for the most part, yeah, you know, I'll tell you what, Mongero, <coughs> Terzepatine, I think it's Terzepatine, Mongero. We covered that. We did a, a long content uh, on a YouTube live a few months ago. It looks like it's going to be twice as effective as Ozempic. So Mongero is going to be a big deal. Another term for these, uh, this class of drugs, GLP-1s, is um, incretins, because incretin is the classification of hormone made by the intestine that this is um, copying. Mongero actually has two different types of incretins in it. 
And so guess what? It's called a twin critin. JMK, Dr. Malcolm Kendricks opines that LDL, whether large fluffy LDL particles or even oxidized small dense LDLs are not injurious to the glycocalyx or the coronary endothelium. Your thoughts? Yeah, I don't. I, <clears throat> my first thought is it's interesting but beyond that, why does it matter? That's my first thought. My second thought is I'm not convinced that they are injurious either. I think that what really injure, injures the glycocalyx and the endothelium is spending too many hours with a glucose, a hundred blood glucose, 140 or more hour after hour, after hour, day after day, after day, month after month. I mean, you can't that in that glycocalyx, the, the fuzzy lining of the artery wall is what actually your, you know, it's how your body hands off oxygen for the cells to use and drops off carbon dioxide. And if that has, you know, if, if that's been clipped and you're functioning with 10% of that, that's going to cause chronic injury to the tissue. And I think that's the injury so where do oxidized LDL, small dense LDL come in? Once you have injury to that lining, then the oxidized LDL can slip through the injured component. I think that's, to me, I think that's really clear. I mean, that's, excuse me, while we look at things like, you know, part one of the most important tests in my mind in the inflammation panel, the cardiovascular inflammation panel, is looking for uh, microproteinuria. Um, what does that mean? MACR, microalbumin, microalbumin uh, creatinine ratio. And I would go back and see if I could find um, what you're testing for there. Basically, what you're looking for is microscopic amounts of albumin, the most common protein uh, in the blood. You're looking for it in the urine. That's associated with cardiovascular risk. Why? Because, again, I think it's the each of the million filters in each kidney is known as a glomerulus. A filter has a filter membrane and then it has a structure. For the most part in a glomerulus, the structure, the supporting structure, which are the media or the muscle cells have pulled away. And you've just got a small section of just the filter membrane itself. The filter membrane is the CIMT which includes the glycocalyx. If that's injured, you're going to be spilling microscopic amounts of protein into the urine. And we can see that. And you can see that measured on a microalbumin creatinine ratio. If that um, endothelium, that intima, uh, that filter membrane is spilling protein, then it's likely to be spilling uh, L, uh, small dense LDL. And once you smell, spill small dense LDL, it's sort of a one-way uh, one trip. It gets stuck in between the intima or the, um, the intima, the endothelium, and the media, and it doesn't go away. That small dense LDL that may be a marker, not the injurious agent itself, 
when it piles up between the intimate and media, that's what uh, they were looking at on um, that CIMT we were talking about earlier. CIMT is uh, carotid intima media thickness test. So you're measuring the amount of small dense LDL that has uh, filtered through injured intima and gotten stuck between the intima and media. And I hope that helps. Some of these things hopefully start to connect, connect the dots. Jay Pittard, or Pittard, I hope it's, uh, there's a, um, a Pittard, there were the, some of the original artillerymen, uh, when they discovered uh, gunpowder, would have these, um, what they called petards. It was an explosive that had a hook on it. And they these guys had a suicide mission, usually. Sometimes they could survive it, but usually not, often not. They would run up <coughs> with the fuse going try to hook this to the door, the petard to the door of the, um, <clears throat> of the castle that they were, that their team, their army was attacking. <clears throat> I don't think that was Fusiliers, but anyhow, it may, maybe it was. Somebody check me, do a fact check on me and let me know. <clears throat> anyway, that's, uh, some, oh, these things would get, would often blow up when they, when they did that. And when that would happen and the person would get blown up, that was called getting hoisted on their own petard. And that became a saying. Uh, I've used that quite a bit. I'm surprised when people haven't heard of it. So pardon me for that bunny hole. That really had nothing to do with cardiovascular disease. But Jay, I, uh, maybe you can clear us up on, on uh, some of my confabulations there. Can you provide some details about the details of how to do HIIT? The only details I have heard is to do 45 seconds at a pace which gets me out of breath, then 30 seconds at a more sustainable pace. No, you can do one minute. In fact, I think one minute is a, a little bit more realistic. Um, <clears throat> if you've heard of Tabatas, T-A-B-A-T-S, uh, Tabatas are a, a good form of... Um, high intensity intervals. What I usually tell people is a couple of things. Number one, you want to get lower, you want to get your larger muscle mass uh, involved with this. Why do you want to do this in the first place? One of the big challenges with um, ongoing aging and especially insulin resistance, whether it's just uh, prediabetes or diabetes, is you start to lose that interaction, that microvasculature of the muscle tissue. Microvasculature of muscle tissue is what gives you the safety um, bypass for aging insulin receptors because um, metabolically active muscles don't require insulin receptors to pull glucose in to the muscle where they're safe and out of the bloodstream where it can burn that uh, glycocalyx. The, one of the most important accomplishments for high intensity interval work is that it improves that microvasculature of the muscles. So when you think about that, then you really want to get the large muscles, the thighs, especially the hips, the calves. These are muscles that um, 
large muscle mass for most people, unless you have paraplegia, um, and therefore significant um, uh, opportunity to increase the capillaries, the capillaries uh, interface with that muscle tissue. <clears throat> so that's number one, work on that lower body. Number two, uh, I, I typically recommend keeping it very, very simple. A minute uh, of hard work. <laughs> you can uh, look at uh, pulse rates too. You know, unless you're on things like beta blockers, uh, most of us try to get to a pulse rate uh, one, at least 115 or higher. Um, I've, I'm 65, but I've continued to maintain a lot of a fairly high level of conditioning. So I'm like a lot of my patients, I'll routinely hit the 150s in terms of pulse rate um, during my intense phase, that one minute of really just running hard. And what I do typically, I've done other things, but for the most part, I'll get a treadmill and do hill intervals, you know, crank the, um, uh, the thing, the incline up and run up a hill for a minute hard and then slow down uh, a real fast walk, like a four minute mile. I mean, not four minute mile, a four mile per hour walk like a, that's like a 15 minute uh, mile uh, walk. And usually with that same incline, sometimes drop the incline. That is one interval. So one minute of intense phase, one minute of sort of a resting phase. That's one interval. Start with three if you've not done these before. And then uh, work up to usually no more than 10. And when you're doing just three, you can do three sessions per week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, whatever your interval, I mean, whatever your schedule uh, works, works for you. Once you work up to 10, uh, I would not do it three times a week. I would do it twice a week. And um, a lot of people say, no, no, I, you know, I do these five times a week. If you're doing them five times a week, you're either going to get just totally worn, worn out and your tissues are going to be too broken up, uh, worn down to where you're going to not feel good. Or you're not doing enough intensity. So usually you don't really want to increase the phases. You don't need to go five minute or 30 minute at in, quote intensity because you can't get that level in, of intensity and maintain it that long. Just keep it at the one minute intense phase, the one minute resting phase and get up max out at about 10 and two sessions of those per week. And when you get better at it, crank up the elevation, uh, 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 you know, crank up the intensity of the intense phase. I hope that helps. If that still leaves more questions, uh, Jay, let me know. Repeating the 45-30 cycle five to eight times, can you suggest any alternatives for a patient who runs out of breath too quickly for this? Well, uh, <clears throat> I don't know that, I mean, I, I think I, I covered that. Um, hopefully I did. Uh, Billy Bong Thornton, Billy Bong Thornton, any tips in lowering triglycerides? Yes. Uh, unless you have some specific genetic issues, and those are not common at all. They happen, but they're not common. The vast majority of high triglycerides is associated with poor cardio, uh, poor um, 
carbohydrate and metabolism. Most often, if you cut carbs, you're going to get a decrease in triglycerides. It's like clockwork. The other thing I'll say, there are, uh, I have used them, uh, use them not that often, but, um, oh, I'm blanking on the, uh, the, um, Amarin Pharmaceuticals makes a uh, concentrated omega-3 fatty acid, and I'm blanking on the name of it right now. Somebody, um, somebody, help me out. Have, a, have an adult moment here, um, or a geriatric moment. Word finding's always such a problem for me. But um, that medication, there's a medication. It is a, uh, it's made by Amarin Phar Pharmaceuticals, and it's a, um, it's pretty good for lowering triglycerides. But again, I don't use it that often because, um, oh, Vasepa, V-A-S-C-E-P-A. I don't use it that often because it, the success of dropping carbs, decreasing carbs, is just so reliable. Fort Worth, with a piece of meat, fish, and other real food, I'm sure the numbers of people having to buy cheap carb foods will go up considerably. Oh, with the price of meat. Uh, the number of people having to buy cheap carbs will go up considerably and add to the obesity, diabetes epidemic. Yes and no. I mean, I have demonstrated that you can go pretty low carb, uh, vegan, vegetarian, and cheap. You end up eating a whole or getting a whole lot of your calories from things like uh, olive oil or avocado oil um, if you're going vegan. Um, I, yeah, but yes, the overall thing is, yeah, it's, you, you can have a much more appetizing diet on more expensive foods, meats, and things like that for low carb. Mezzanine, at J. Petard, extend your recovery periods. It's sufficient to get your breath and get your heart rate down. It can be a minute or even a bit more. But focus on the uh, intensity of the work interval. That's a really, really good point, Mezzanine. Um, that's exactly right. That's a great suggestion. Thank you for listening and making that suggestion. Uh, Fort Worth, what's the likelihood of a piece of calcified plaque breaking loose and causing a blockage versus a soft plaque rupturing and forming a clot? I'm guessing very low. I mean, I've just never heard of that. <laughs> See, part of what you're assuming, Fort Worth, is that that plaque is lining the inside of the artery. It's not. It's inside. It, it is inside the artery wall. So therefore, there is that intima between the blood supply and that stable plaque. Um, that soft plaque, it's easier, it's liquid, so it's easier to squeeze through when you get a rip or a tear. Uh, so Bart says, very good question. I hope I, that was a very good answer. <laughs> Parker Reed, Happy New Year, Dr. Brewer. Happy New Year to you as well. Bart, thanks for your answer to the aspirin question. Thank you. And I'm going to, I need to take a little bit more of a look at that, at the question of enteric coating. Enteric coating not, used to not be so good, but I'm suspecting that it may have improved a good bit over the past year. Melissa says, yes, they came from cardio risk. And she's talking about her CIMT. And I've seen a whole lot of CIMTs and 
Yes, and I, I knew which reports were coming from where. Jay Petard, I'd like to be curious. I would also be curious about the necessity of eloquence continuity for VFIP, which was the which was the kind of arrhythmia that I experienced chronically when I had too much caffeine before my ablation. So, Jay, I'm just going to ask you, <clears throat> are you sure it was VFib, ventricular fibrillation, because that's lethal and not very common? On the other hand, um, atrial fib is very, very, it is the most common. And in fact, it's sort of like prediabetes. There's probably about 10 times the amount of, of paroxysmal atrial fib out there than is known because doctors just don't diagnose it. They don't you know, they don't think about it, just like they don't think about metabolic syndrome. Now, I'm going to answer your question with the assumption that it was actually atrial fib. And the answer is, we don't know. There's a debate. There's an argument. And when there's an ongoing healthy debate and argument, it means we don't really know for sure who's right. Some people would say, continue to take it. Others would say, oh, if you've had an ablation, you're fine. Here's the problem with that second thing. The typical ablation lasts a matter of months, six months, 18 months, 23 months, and then it doesn't work. And unfortunately, quite often, you don't know when that atrial fib came back. So it reminds you of that line in one of the opening, I think it was one of the opening scenes of, of one of the Dirty Harry movies, are you feeling lucky? Melissa, it showed no soft plaque. Thank you for answering. I feel less worried now. Well, thank you, Melissa. I've had a whole lot of a whole lot of practice with that very same discussion over and over and over again because of the way that report set up. And, and you know, it's not just the way that report set up, it's it's the science. It's, uh, you know, things are not so easy. Some things are, reality is sometimes confusing. Reza Samahan, let me look here. Gosh, oh, man, I'm, I don't, we're not going to be able to get to the end of this today. Um, we did get a, a super chat from uh, LPG12338. Um, has given us several of those. Thank you so much, LPG. We really do appreciate these. And again, um, as you see in the upper right-hand corner, um, Gilbert's showing you how to do that. You go down to the, the bottom part of the chat areas, you can hit a super chat and help us, you know, like uh, LPG has done here, help us get content, this life-saving content out to other human beings that have access to YouTube and, and um, Rumble and, uh, oh, what's the other one? Facebook, Meta. So uh, LPG's question, while I like the main topic of these videos, my favorite part is the Q&A part. Keep up the great work. Uh, you know, that's that's uh, understandable, LPG, for a couple of reasons. I've always enjoyed doing more of a Q&A. When I do a presentation, I prefer people to interrupt with questions because it's just so much more spontaneous. And it's a lot easier to understand spontaneity than it is to just sit back and um, go to sleep hearing somebody um, 
do a presentation. Um, and sometimes I can be very talented at taking an interesting topic and turning it into a very dull presentation. So thank you again for the comment. Um, someone else has, a somnambulist has given us a, a super chat. And that looks like in pounds, four, four pounds, 49. Uh, thank you so much, somnambulist. Uh, we really appreciate that. Again, that these dollars go to, um, to help us get this content out. They help us pay for the technical, um, the technical support for getting this information out. <clears throat> Every time I talk about technical support, I have to go back to that old, you know, the shaky paper days. There are some people that have, that have followed us for years and know that the first year or two, I would just take something like that <clears throat> or print out a, <clears throat> a slide and put it in front of the screen. So, <clears throat> Let me go back. I've got, I think I've got time for a couple more and let's just, uh, oh, here we go. Somnambulus equals sleepwalker. I got to tell you a sleepwalker story. Uh, I was a sleepwalker when I was a teenager. I remember waking up in the front yard a couple of times. Um, and here was an interesting thing. The second day after I took my first dose of Ozempic, I slept walk again. I had not slept walk. I was 65 years old, still am. And I had not slept walked in maybe 50 years. And I, I haven't done it again. It's just that one night, but it was just a very interesting experience. We were in New Orleans. And um, so here's what happened. I, I got up, I walked out the hotel door. I was leaning over the, um, the porch railing. We, we were on the second floor. Then I came back in and I woke up. I was in the, the bathroom of the hotel feeling around and it was dark and I was trying to find the light so I could, uh, I needed to pee. So very, very interesting. Uh, so let's talk about Ricky the girl's questions. A meat intensive diet. I should be good for insulin resistance, but what are your thoughts? Oh, okay. A meat intensive diet should be good for insulin resistance, but what are your thoughts on its effect of inflammation and overall health? Should glycemic effect always be the leading concern? Glycemic effect is what's killing most of us, Ricky the gun. There's no question about that. So yes, it should be the leading concern. Unless you've got things like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, you know, some of the inflammatory diseases that happen. Most inflammatory diseases do not impact cardiovascular inflammation, but some of them do, like the classic one being uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Now, people have been worried about a meat diet forever. And there was a great book. It was uh, called... It was by Nina Tycholtz. I think it's T-E-I-C-H-O-L-Z. And um, it's called The Big Fat Surprise. And her point behind that book, she's, she's more of a science uh, uh, editorialist or science um, uh, writer. 
And she brought up the question, is saturated fat, which is the big issue with meat, is that a big problem? Her conclusion was no. And that was a very popular book. It was very well written. If you haven't read it and you read books, you might want to read it, especially if you have an interest in this topic. Well, what has what happened was that created a lot of buzz in the medical scientific community about this issue. There have been one, not one, but two uh, meta-analyses associated with that and both of them. One of them was printed in, uh, published in uh, Jack, the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. And I can't remember where the other one was published. Both of them found no increase in risk associated with saturated fat, which is usually going to be coming from meat in the diet. So I don't blame you for being skeptical or for if that's a big surprise to you. But the evidence is changing in the science out there. Harvey Ops, I had prostate cancer, tons of studies on NIH regarding negative effect of venous sirtuins on various cancers. Very interesting. And the one last one, Harvey Ops, Dr. Kendrick, the clot thickens. Yes, I'll, um, I've read some of his stuff. I, I thought it was good. The only problem is that if you read and listen to a lot of his stuff, <clears throat> he almost sounds like a, a uh, conspiracy theorist. And you know, I, I, I'm not going to argue with it. I, I used to be naive. I'm not naive enough to think that there are no conspiracies. There are clear conspiracies in here. One of the issues, there's a big conspiracy in my space. Everything has been, uh, so many things have been, so many hospital salaries, so many cardiology, cardiologists, uh, mortgages, so many uh, cardiology clinic mortgages are all being paid by getting stress tests and doing stents uh, that I think that really is more of the reason why those things haven't gone by the wayside. Um, We've got plenty of evidence now that um, stents don't prevent heart attacks, but you know, the courage trial, the orbiter trial, And the results of both of those uh, led a lot of people to say, well, stents may not prevent heart attacks, so you got to do a bypass. Well, guess what? The ischemia trials came along as a direct result of some of that assumption, and they don't prevent heart attacks either. But more stents are being placed than ever before. Why? You tell me. Thank you so much. It was a great visit. I appreciate your interest and I look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at prevmedhealth.com. To learn more, watch our videos on YouTube at Ford Brewer MD MPH. Thank you very much for your interest.